George, that's not necessarily true. I mean, after all, what was it that Henry Ford said about history? Uh, uh, it's on the tip of my tongue. Uh, no, no, it was Earl Wilson in the Post that said it. Uh, didn't he say that history is bunk? Something like that? <laughs> so, uh, yes, it sounds like his style, bringing up. If he could somehow work with zooms into history, he'd have something to say about bringing up. events were about to occur. Oh, yeah, you know, I, I have a feeling that almost anything in our life, almost almost every experience of our life that, that we really retain has to do with summer and hot weather. I don't know why, I, practically, but it's a fact. Very few love stories are written about a guy in Dubuque, Iowa in mid-December. Think about it. Now, now think, think of all the movies you've seen that involve, you know, passion, sex. Have you ever seen one that took place amid snowbanks? Not one. It's always summer. People are always running into the great fields. And, uh, you know, the whole business. And, and so, for that reason, I think man secretly, subconsciously, hibernates psychically in the wintertime. He doesn't do it physically, psychically. And that uh, yeah, he shuts it off. It's all shut off. He functions, yeah, you know, a little bit. Uh, your motor idols, uh, you know, this is like bears, you know, they, they, uh, they're actually alive, you know, when they're hibernating. And in fact, a bear, quite often, a hibernating animal, may be awake for, you know, weeks on end. He's just laying there. Nothing happening. And uh, he's just, you know, shut it out. The scene is bad out there. The snow and the wind blowing. He just... Forget it. Shuts it off. Well, you know, it's, a, it's an odd coincidence. One of the most nostalgic areas of human, uh, present day, present day nostalgia centers around a curious thing. I mean, for nostalgia, you stop thinking about it. Nostalgia is usually dealing with the past. Airports. Do you ever think of an airport as a nostalgic thing? Yeah, it is. It really genuinely is. I mean, it's a place where people take off and go. It's a place where people arrive. And there's a lot of subtle, deep undercurrent of passion, romance, loss, uh, regret. By the way, that's a great one. Uh, <laughs> regret that have to do with airports. I'm just curious how many uh, unbelievably romantic and drearily dismal scenes have been played out in airport waiting rooms. It's just, you know, countless. That, in, a, in addition to the fact that the airplane itself is basically an extremely romantic creation. The idea of flight. Flight. I mean, forget the fact that you're buying a ticket on American Airlines and you're going on maybe the Eastern Shuttle to Boston. The idea of flight is romantic. It is. And I, I, particularly, and I can't say this, uh, you know, again, I don't want to be 
uh, didactic about this, but I suspect that it deals more, it's, it's, it's more so with males than it is with females. Now, I don't know why this is so. It just seems to me. Now, I know that by next Monday, I will have 422 letters from women saying, yeah, yeah, me too. But I'm not sure. <laughs> I'm not sure. I, I'm, I'm willing to be convinced, but I'm really not sure that, uh, that it's always man that wants to undertake the fantastic voyage. It is. Uh, it, at least in, in, in uh, the historical context of literature, certainly. That, uh, you know, the, the great uh, Greek classical tragedies of man's struggle against God knows what have been replete with plenty of electors. But the electors, you see, basically deals with uh, making the old man blow up the castle other than let's split, you know. Poor old Macbeth. It seems to me that Macbeth was the classic Jiggs character of all of classical literature. You, you, you remember Maggie and Jiggs? Did you ever hear of Maggie and Jiggs? Well, you know, Maggie was this fantastic, uh, tough chick, and Jiggs was always va vaguely the victim who wanted to always go down and just have nothing but, you know, all he wanted to do was really knock down some beer, go down to Dindy Moore's and have some corned beef and cabbage, but he wound up at the opera with the old lady. Well, uh, <laughs> I've always felt that, that, uh, that Macbeth was not a madman and an evil killer. I think Macbeth finally says, all right, I'll do it. All right, enough, you know. And so he went out and did it. And uh, with all due respect to, what was her name, Barbara Gerson, the one uh, playwriter, the one that wrote Mac Macbird. With all due respect, uh, the play should have been about somebody else than Johnson. But uh, nevertheless... Uh, this, you know, this is just a, a casual, in passing observation. But how this all came about, as a flyer, I'm I'm a private pilot. As a private pilot, I always find around airports, and I've flown into a lot of them. I always find a peculiar quality of odd nostalgia and a strange kind of peace about airports. It's a curious thing. It's like uh, it's like a uh, a wharf. Wharfs are like this, too. It's, it's a point of embarkation, a point of expectation and dashed hopes. Uh, <laughs> you're working simultaneously, you know. Many a guy, you know, gets off the boat on some fantastic trip he's taken and discovers that he stepped right into quicksand. And, uh, you know, this is uh, the dashed hope principle. However, the other day, and uh, this, this uh, show tonight, have any of you ever heard... Well, all right, I won't even tell you what, what his name is. A, 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 a fantastic character in American folk legend. And when I say fantastic, he was almost, and at his, in his time, genuinely was a fantasy among many people. In fact, there were uh, thousands of, uh, of uh, ersatz literary characters that were created and based on the kind of guy that he really was. It would be like meeting, uh, let's say, uh, one day you're walking around, you see, and he's, uh, he's never made it before, he's not been famous. See, one day you meet Hamlet. You know, he's, he's sitting down at the chock full of nuts, you know, having a brownie or something. And you start talking to him, see, and, uh, <laughs> and there he is, see. Well, uh, there, there, that, what I'm trying to say is that almost every great literary character uh, type, when I, no, I don't mean a specific character, a type, has had, at one point or another, a human embodiment of that. 
And, and uh, from that human embodiment sprang thousands of fantasies. Uh, we, we have a classic example of that today in Humphrey Bogart. There are more Humphrey Bogart fantasies around that bore a little relationship to Bogart himself. But the idea that he uh, portrayed in many of his films uh, created almost an archetypical character, Humphrey Bogart, as a character. It would be the same... Uh, this has happened in other cases, too. Uh, Jimmy Dean, the late Jimmy Dean, for example. People confused the character that he played in the movie with him. And ultimately, he began to believe it, too. I peripherally knew him, and he began to believe this thing. See, up to that point, he was just an actor. It would be like, a, you know, this is a big problem. Maybe you're not aware of that problem with actors. And as an actor, I've done enough on the stage to speak with some authority on this subject, and very few people, no, very few people ever mentioned this side of acting. That is the transference of a, of a person into the character that he has played, and then the ultimate belief deep inside the actor himself that he is that character. Now, I don't mean a specific character, but he's that kind of guy. Now, uh, yeah, contemporarily, we see several like that. I don't know how I got on the subject, but take John Wayne. I'm sure that John Wayne looks upon himself as a veteran of countless wars. He really does. I'll bet, I'll bet, I'll bet when he reads the word, you know, war veteran or soldier in, a, in the paper, he thinks that that means him, you know. He, he, he identifies with this, you see. And I'm not sure that he's ever been in any service, has he actually? I don't think so. In short, as an actor, he has played, uh, you know, he's, he's always played the, uh, the captain of the cavalry troop. It has to do with the Vietnamese War, which by then will be history, you know, way back in the distance someplace. And uh, somebody said, well, do you remember any of that, Charlie? And he said, yeah, yeah, I remember. Well, what do you remember? Well, I remember all these people. <laughs> That's about all he can remember, you see. And, and now he may fake it. He may come on later and, you know, pretend like he knew all about it. He may fake uh, knowledge of it and so forth. It's not true, you see. It's just, obviously, he's faking it. But uh, nevertheless, the, what, what happens at a time uh, of a historical moment, uh, and you're, you happen to be there, and you're too young to understand it, is always intriguing later on. By the way, this is WOR New York, speaking of dynamic excitement. Do you know that I one time had the chance to talk to a woman, an old, old lady? And at this time, this was, oh, I was uh, in school at the time. And she was an old lady at the time. She must have been 96 or 97, something like that, who actually remembered living in a small town in Kentucky when all of the guys that she knew, you know, she was a teenager or something, all the, all the people she knew went off to fight the Civil War. And, and, and she remembered it. You know, I, I'd ask her. And to her, it was just, you know, just like any other memory. To us, that's so historical that it's incredible to think that somebody could actually, uh, you know, somebody actually was there and says, oh, well, there goes Fred. He's going off to join the uh, Kentucky Rifles, you know, the 23rd Regiment or whatever it was. And uh, she remembers that, and she remembers them coming back. And I talked to her. I couldn't, you know, believe it. But uh, nevertheless, I have, I have, reading this piece in the Times, it hit me that that fantastic Saturday, it was a Saturday, by the way, and I know specifically why it was a Saturday, because my old man was off on that day. He was never off except Saturday and Sunday. And Saturday was his big day. So uh, on this particular Saturday, my old man, who, who went to everything, one thing I must concede, the old man did, that, that whenever there was a big action going on, we'd get in the Oldsmobile and go to it. 
I mean, if they were going to blow up an atom bomb somewhere, we'd go there. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. He followed fires. Whenever he'd hear a siren, we'd be out in the back of the car and off he'd go, you know. He went, and, and, and uh, he was, he was, a, he was a, a crowd follower. He'd love to go where there was some big action going on. So on this particular Saturday, we uh, got up real early. And uh, we were going to go to this thing. Well, of course, I was about five or something. I was a kid, see, and I, I didn't uh, put it all together. Except the, the old man was really excited. He said, oh, boy. He said, where do you, where do you see this? He said, uh, this, this is where you're really, really, really going to dig this. You know, it's going to be great. And so we got in the car. Hot. Oh, God, was it a hot day. Remember that. Hot day. We get in the Oldsmobile. And uh, the old man is, uh, you know, he's got some beer with him. And uh, we take off, get into the traffic, fantastic traffic jam going down there, see. Well, we arrive, we arrive at the airport. We're going to the airport. Well, then the airport itself is exciting. Just the idea of the airport. And uh, we, we get there, we park the car, and the, there were cops out there. There were parking cars. If some big event is about to occur, you know, they have all the parking police out and the whole bit, and the dust is flying. And we're, everybody's parking the fields. They have ropes out there, and they're directing cars, and guys are yelling and hollering, and fat ladies are walking around eating... Uh, potato salad, and, you know, the whole bit. So it's a big carnival atmosphere going on, see. And uh, they, they had big bunting stands. They had the hangers all decorated with bunting and stuff hanging down. And they, everybody was all excited. And a couple of airplanes take off, and some come down. And we joined a crowd, a tremendous crowd, out on the field that were being held back by ropes. And uh, there we were. We're waiting. And uh, once in a while, somebody on the PA says, You know, that kind of stuff, echoing off, uh, parking lot uh, announcements and stuff. And I'm getting all excited. My kid brother, you know, he starts to whine because it's hot and uh, his nose is running and all that. And my mother, she, she always just went along to this stuff. I mean, to this day, if I ever ask my mother about this, she remember the day we went to this. She said, yes. How do you remember it? Because most people think a four or five or six-year-old kid doesn't remember anything, you know. He doesn't, he's not even with it. But it was a great event to me because it was the airport and everything else that happened as a result of this day. And we're all standing around waiting. And it's getting hotter and hotter. It's now about one o'clock in the afternoon. And the, the heat in Indiana at one o'clock in the afternoon on a mid-July day can only be imagined. I can't tell you how hot it gets. It really gets hot, especially when you're standing out on a flat, open airport. There's nothing. There's no shade. There's, naturally, because it's a big field. Thing. And the sun is rocking down. We're waiting. And the tension is growing. And the, everybody is uh, beginning to mill around, and the police are pushing the people back. And more people have come now. There's greater crowd. It must have been 100,000 people have come out there. And then uh, the announcement. On the pole, we are 20 minutes late due to problems of weather over Omaha, Nebraska. And uh, so, I, you know, he's going to be late. So people, you hear the crowd, <sighs> big uproar and more and more uh, excitement. And so that this thing is building up. Little did I realize until later that it was done purposely. In other words, this guy was such a consummate showman, the one I'm about to deal with here, that he recognized that it's far more dramatic for a performer to arrive late than to arrive early. 
In fact, all good politicians know this, that uh, when you show up to give a speech someplace, if you show up before the ladies with the, you know, with the potato salad show up, you're just a guy. But if they keep waiting, waiting, the tension builds up, and then all of a sudden, unexpectedly, you burst out of the wings after having, uh, you know, gone through an enormous travail to get there. It's really dramatic, you see. And so everybody's waiting for tension. And then suddenly it happened, way off in the distance. And everybody had been watching off towards the west, where he was supposed to come. Way off in the distance, faintly, you could hear it at first. You could hear the sound, very faint, of this airplane approaching. Faint, faint, real faint. This plane and just goes right over the field. Way up. He was must have been 15,000 feet. And the people are going eight. Fantastic uproar. That airplane. And the crowd. The guy's got, got binoculars on. They're watching him. And he circles high over the field. Just circling. You can hear the sound, the beat of that motor. And the crowd is watching. Way up there, outlined against the sun, this guy. High. You can see the... Light glinting off the wings. He had a spectacular airplane, by the way. And then somebody began to get the beat because now he's coming down deep and low. He makes a big circle around the field. Big circle. The crowd is going ape and cheering. The old man is standing up on the top of my mother's shoulders, you know, with his $4 binoculars. He's looking, hey, my God, there he is. And at that moment, the band starts to play. They had this band, you know, the crowd is cheering the band. Engines. And they got the band going now. I'm going out of my bird. <laughs> band is playing the airplane circling around. And he, he he goes way out, makes a deep, wide turn. Now I know what he was doing, you see, as a pilot, but at that time it just seemed to be flying around the field. But actually he's in the pattern, see. Makes that big wide turn. And then he slowly, you can see the flaps come down, and he starts drifting down into the final. The band is playing loud. Boy, there are guys with banjos, people yelling. They're throwing beer cans in the air, you know, the whole thought. They were going out in their birds, see. And then, zap, the band stops, and there he is. He's rolling down the feet. You can hear that motor. That engine just potting away. Just roaring out there. Everybody waits. He guns it a couple of times, blap, blap, and a... Oh, yeah, oh, a good pilot. You know, he just blam, blam. He's clearing the... He's clearing the piston. Blam, blam. The crowd is watching this guy. He's just putting down that, down that long, flat, that beautiful runway, and then he cuts it silence. And the plane is sitting there under the sun. And you see this head in the cockpit. It was an open cockpit plane. See the head sticking out there. And casually, he begins to crawl out. He just climbs out and stands on the wing. And he waves at the crowd. What a moment. And he, he looked exactly the way classical pilots look. You know, the helmet. They had the big green goggles up on the top of his head. He actually had a white silk scarf. Had a big silk scarf hanging down and a leather jacket, magnificent leather jacket with a zipper that goes up the side. And he had these high riding breeches. They were kind of dark suede color, you know, and high leather boots. 
And then he reaches down into the cockpit and he pulls out by a leash a lion cub. He had a lion cub in his open cockpit plane. I can't tell you how ape the crowd went. Fantastic moment. There it was. And, I, and I'm a little kid saying, I'm looking at all this. Jeez, this is wild. A real airplane pilot. And he climbs out of the plane. He pulls the, pulls the lion cub out. And by this time, you know, the, the mayor, the city officials are all rushing down, and the cameras are going off, and guys are running down with microphones and the whole business. And he stands there and gives a big wave to the crowd. The crowd instantly roars. And somebody handed him some kind of a scroll. <laughs> they always give guys scrolls and plaques and stuff. He gets this plaque scroll. And the police separate the crowd. You know, it was like separating. It was like, just like going through the Red Sea, you know, zap. You know, they're going out and kicking people out and belting them out of the head with the clubs. And they separate. And he goes right down through the middle of the crowd. And the people are yelling and hollering. The old man's got his brownie camera out. You know, he's trying to take pictures. And, you know, the whole bit, everybody, you see guys with cameras and people crying. Everybody trying to grab him. And he disappears into the hangar. And in the hangar, of course, that's when they had the official ceremony. Of course, that wasn't for the people. See, the, you know, the, 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 the proletariat, we're just out there in the field. And uh, that moment of, of him landing and seeing that plane outlined against the sky, I've never forgotten that moment. And for that reason, I suppose, flying has always been to me extremely romantic. It's, 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 been, it's more than just taking the uh, shuttle to Boston, you know. It's, it's, it's flying. It's flight. And I see this guy get out of big. He, was, he must have been six feet two, you know. He had a waist, a wasp waist. The guy had a waist, you know, maybe 12-inch waist. See? Tremendous shoulders and this magnificently fitting leather jacket. And he, had, he even had the classical smiling Jack mustache. And by the way, the character, many people feel the character of smiling Jack was based on this guy. Because he looked like him. Had that, you know, the chiseled profile, the narrow slit eyes, the look of a man who has who has peered into the sun, endless hours, piloting a dangerous aircraft. And he walks into this this hangar, and the crowd sort of hung around for a long time outside the hangar. He never reappeared. Apparently they got him out the back somehow. We never saw him again. But that plane, that magnificent airplane, sitting out there on the runway with the sun on it, with all the police around it, has, has stuck in my mind like some kind of a Kodachrome slide, just that plane. And I even remember the, the number on the side of it. had a big number, 57. 57, with a big circle around it. Now, the 57 was symbolic. It wasn't just a number. What major product in America has in its slogan... 57. You're right, Shelley. That's right. 57 varieties. And uh, he, was, he was sponsored, apparently, by Heinz, the pickle company. And they had a big 57 on the side of that magnificent airplane. Low-winged. It, it was a shark-like aircraft. Well, now, coincidentally, and I'll, and I'll have to bring it up to date now. Coincidentally, you know, I heard the guy's name. They were always talking. His name was 
was every, everybody was talking about it at this airfield, you see. And ever since that time, I've hardly ever heard his name again. It's just like one of those great historical characters that kind of disappear into a miasma of, of misty past that's gone. Once in a while, uh, you'd, you'd see his name mentioned in a, in a kind of breathless, hallowed tone in an aviation magazine. And then, then I began to feel, well, maybe this character he was a guy I just created, you know, <laughs> somehow you don't really believe he really was there, because you don't see much about him. You know, uh, this, this is also true. This is one of the reasons why people like to read in the paper about things that they themselves have seen. They want to reassure themselves they really saw it. A lot of people uh, don't think really that radio exists, because the radio isn't written much about in papers. You know, there's a, a subtle thing here. Television exists because there's a magazine called TV Guide. And you can see it. You can hold it and feel it. And so this guy sort of slipped back into the distant past. I never thought much about him. A month ago, one month ago, maybe a little more than that, early June, I came in on an airplane. This is in a private plane to the Indianapolis airport. And we taxied around back of one of the hangars, and the, the plane, we put the plane in the area that they told us to put it in. I stepped out of the airplane, and by George, here is a hangar, tremendous hangar, sort of a little bit off the beaten path at the, at the Indianapolis airport. Big hangar, and it had his name across the front of it. And not only his name, had a big pair of golden wings. Guy is a showman to the last. Big pair of golden wings around his name. And I'm walking past the hangar. I'm looking up at it. It's kind of weather-beaten. It's raining slightly. And I was with a pilot who was from Indianapolis. And I said, hey, is this really his hangar? He says, yeah, that's right. They're making museum there. Aviation, his aviation museum. I said, is his airplane in there? He said, you bet it is. Totally restored. Well, I walked around the side of the building, and it was closed that day. By the way, often things that are closed are more dramatic than things that are open. It was closed, and the rain slightly. And I looked through the side door, you know, like you see in a regular hangar, just a little door with a glass thing and a little window there, and I looked through the door, and sure enough, in the gloom, sitting back there, was that very airplane. That very airplane, low wing, shark-like, sitting in the darkness there, with a big number 57 on the side. I just looked at it, sitting there all by itself. And this guy next to me, this pilot, he said, gee, that, that's, a, you know, that's a real valuable restored plane. I said, yeah. Fantastic airplane. And he said, you know, I used to see him around here. Apparently he, he hung around that airport all the time. He had a business there. He says, I, I used to see him here all the time. Distinguished looking character. I said, man, you know, I one time saw him. Don't worry about it. That's all right. That's that clock up there. Don't worry about it. Show it. There you go. I, I, I said, you know, one time I actually saw him. And he says, no kidding. Really? 
I said, you know, I didn't even understand at the time what it was all about, what, you know, what was the importance of it. But I can remember hearing the sound of that airplane engine. Just bring me a little of that airplane engine. This, this, the sound of that engine, the sound of, of him blipping that thing, just quietly cooling out over, you know, the, the, the sound of that, that, that taxi just gunning that engine, sending up a cloud of dust along the runway. And, and the next day, by the way, there was an equally large crowd out at the airport to see him take off again. We didn't go back. We didn't see the takeoff. But uh, more people, they tell me, went out to see him take off than even came to see him arrive. Fantastic moment. Because, you know, uh, flying, like very few human activities, is extremely primal. When you are defying the law of gravity, you are doing something against nature. And when you're doing something against nature, you are courting ultimate disaster and annihilation. We tend to forget it, you know. We go out, we get in an airplane, you say, oh, it's groovy, you know, and that's it. Oh, no. You're doing a lot more than that. I'm not saying flying is dangerous. I'm saying that flying is a primal activity. And the sound of that motor... You know who I'm talking about? You remember the name? Did you ever hear of him? Colonel Roscoe Turner. And uh, he was, uh, uh, to me, a fantastic character. Oh, not only me. I mean, here, here was a guy that, that, that was a world, a world character uh, for what he did. Uh, for the, not only for what he did, but the, the elan with which he did it. He was a consummate showman. Boy, would he have been a fantastic character on the talk shows today. Roscoe, you know, I mean, because he looked like, yeah, the trouble is that most people don't look like what they, you know, what they do. About the only people who look like what they are are actors. They look like actors. But, they, you know, you see a fantastic brain surgeon. Did you think he looks like Kildare? Nah. Most of them look like pears, you know, usually bald and kind of weak eyes. They got thick glasses. <laughs> you know, they just don't make it when it comes to image. And uh, you, you, you talk to a writer, you know, you always think a writer should look like, uh, like a writer, but instead he looks like a tailor, usually. You run into so many of them, you know, they look like little kind of sad little guys, and they write these fantastic stories. But Roscoe Turner looked like exactly what he was. And he set the pattern. Uh, after that, you know, uh, they, they had, uh, if, you, if you watch television late at night, you will see a lot of aviation movies, uh, you know, about test pilots and guys that are uh, in, in speed uh, competitions and so forth. I wonder how many people know that most of those movies were written about Roscoe Turner. This guy. In other words, the character that, say, uh, Preston Foster played. Uh, <laughs> the character that... that uh, uh, you know who's always playing those characters was George Brent. The character that George Brent played, because he looked a little like him, you see. The character that George Brent played when Alan Hale was on the ground, always the, the trusty mechanic, and uh, he was always standing there talking to him on this radio, and he turns to his friend, he says, I wouldn't send my worst enemy up in that crate today. <sighs> the wind is blowing. Well, he's talking about Turner, who did do those things. And uh, Turner uh, was, was one... I'll give you some other names, by the way, of characters who were equally famous at that time as uh, total daredevils and stunt pilots. Jimmy Doolittle was another one. 
Uh, one of the one of the stories of Doolittle, of course, we could go into Doolittle's fantastic career as a stunt pilot, but uh, Doolittle uh, was of that era, and uh, these guys were absolutely nerveless. Uh, I remember one time my, my old man, he used to go to air shows all the time. I was too small to even be taken, but he went to one of the most famous air shows ever held, ever, anywhere in the world. It was held in Cleveland. And at that air show, Doolittle, uh, Ernst Udet, who, by the way, later was the head of the Luftwaffe, right under uh, Goering. Ernst Udet was a famous German World War I ace and also a famous... Uh, uh, stunt pilot. Uh, Doolittle and Udet had a famous battle there at that Cleveland Air Show to compete for, you know, who was going to be the uh, win the world championship in stunt flying. It was unbelievable. And the old man came back and talked, told stories about, you know, about this fantastic thing, which meant nothing at all to me at the time. And it just a thing. It was just like if, if your old man goes off and he goes to Yankee Stadium, he comes back and talks about it. You don't think much about it. But later, of course, now at this point, the historical context of the whole thing has really hit me. Now, Roscoe Turner, for the benefit of those who wonder, you know, who he was, the thing that made aviation so difficult in those days was not only was it extremely expensive, obviously, uh, to to operate a a, a speed aircraft, to to build and prepare and to maintain and to put it into competition was tremendously expensive, but it was extremely hazardous. In those days, of course, they didn't have the kind of navigational aids that we have today. In fact, you know, it would surprise a lot of people to know that the navigational aids, which generally are in, you know, in general use, that most people, in fact, are in general use pretty much all over the world today, are a comparatively recent development in aviation. But up to a recent time, comparatively recent, most of the navigators in aircraft flying over long distance literally navigated by the stars. They actually did celestial navigation. Uh, and so, so they, uh, they would uh, navigate by the use of a sextant. And uh, it's hard to believe, you know, at this point, if you get into a 707 and you're on your way to Frankfurt, that up on the, uh, up on the poop deck there, some guy is taking a sight on the stars. He's getting, you know, the whole, the whole panoply of, of international navigation. But at the time when, when guys like Turner were setting international speed records, they literally flew without any kind of navigational aids that we would think of today. And uh, there were no fields where he could make a sudden landing if he needed uh, gas or uh, to find out where he was. It, it took fantastic skill to be a pilot in those days. Genuine, absolute skill. There weren't the aids that we use today. And uh, not only did it take skill, it took more than that because the public, while looking at the airplane people as exotic and dangerous, also had no trust in them. They were, they were all like uh, characters out of uh, Class B movies. And so they, they rarely ate. They, they had trouble getting meal money, even. Because, oh yes, it was uh, flying in those days from, from the people I've talked to about, uh, you know, I, I, I've met people since I've become a flyer who knew people at the time and who were involved in and so on. They said, you know, one of the worst problems of being a flyer in those days, it was like being an artist or an actor. People looked upon you as some kind of kook. So uh, uh, there was no way to, uh, uh, you couldn't go down to the to the local restaurant and say, lend me a dollar so I can have something to eat. He says, lend you a dollar. Like, uh, it's like lending, uh, you know, a, a poet a buck. You're not going to get it back, you know. So uh, <laughs> these guys rarely ate. 
Uh, and so they would literally live in their airplanes. They had no place to live, many of them, because they couldn't afford it. And so uh, the, the, the story of how many guys would live in, under the wing of their airplane to keep the rain off of them, uh, just to, they would live like under a tent. And uh, they would go out and scrunch something to eat. And the big problem, of course, was getting gasoline for your airplane. That's where all their money went. And so they would barnstorm across the country. None of them ever made money at barnstorming. What they did was continue to get... They loved flying so much because the flying was so exciting and it was part of their lives so completely that, uh, that flying was looked upon as a self-perpetuating thing. In other words, they would barnstorm to get gas so they could do more flying. And so pilots would, uh, would go from town to town and give rides for a dollar, a dollar and a half, two dollars. And they would arrive at a town, and they would just land, and the big sign would go up, two dollars to, you know, sightsee. And at the end of the day, they may have 40 or 50 bucks, which would just cover the gas that they have burned. <laughs> Barely. Uh, with very little left over for hamburgers and joints. So, so I, I hope this hasn't bored you too much. I'm sure a lot of non-flying types have been totally bored by this. But, you know, I think that, that a great character like Colonel Roscoe Turner, who was part of the history, the social history of our country, and certainly part of the technical history of, uh, of not only our country but the world, somebody should just recognize the fact that he did, you know, that he was here and he made an impact. And uh, at his time, and, and, and from what they say, the old guy, you know, I've talked to people about him in his later years. From what they say, he never lost that Atlanta and that pizzazz. So at the age of 70, he is dashing, you know, the white scarf, the whole bit, you know, with the, mm, the pencils, sharp mustache, and, and the ruddy complexion, those square jawed, that he remains smiling Jack to the very last day of his life. And that in itself is, a, is, a, you know, is, a, is an achievement worthy of note. Did you see in, in the Times recently a little tiny obituary that the world's first recording artist just died? A lady over in New Jersey who was like 100 years old. She played the piano when Thomas Alva Edison was experimenting making records. <laughs> and, uh, she passed on, you know. And, and uh, this, uh, this to me is a, is a you know, a peculiar thing. Nothing to do with nostalgia. It's the passing of a strange historical moment. The first recording star. The first person who ever made a record. Think about that for a minute. They will now make records for the next 20 million years of one kind or another, but this was the first person who recorded anything ever. And she played the piano for Thomas Alva Edison. Good Lord. Well, I'll tell you this. The other day, just, uh, well, within, within the past six months, I'm out in Montauk, and I met a guy on a golf course, this distinguished, dapper gentleman, and he sees my AOPA wings, which are uh, flying insignia, and he says, oh, is it uh, a flyer? Yeah. He whips out his flying license, and would you believe his flying license was signed by Orville Wright, I am not kidding you. I kid you not. <laughs> and he was flying. He was flying it in the days of Orville and Wilbur Wright. I says, doesn't anybody ever talk to you about this? He says, no. Nobody's interested. 
And hour after hour, Zsa Zsa Gabor continues to be interviewed. 